A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part two about the Jewish history in Muncie and part of the Great American Jewish City series, so this episode has been generously sponsored by an old and dear friend of Jewish History Soundbites in honor of the very worthy cause of Reb Shaila's Kitchen, which is an organization which helps middle-class families going through temporary hardship to get back on their feet through a great grocery assistance program, a financial coaching, business coaching, and any assistance to help a hard-working family get back on their feet. So please uh, check it out and donate on rsk.org, and I'll, of course, post the link as well. It's also in memory of Rabbi Yaakov Halevi Lipschitz, who was the son-in-law of Rablazer Levine of Detroit, and also a great rabbi uh, in Muncie for many years. Uh, for this uh, part two, I also want to take the opportunity to thank um, Yassel Heisman, an old Muncie uh, family from an old Muncie family who was gracious enough to give of his time and share many, many uh, uh, anecdotes about personalities and institutions of Muncie. A lot of the stories uh, that I'll be relating in this uh, part two came from him um, and sources that he pointed me to. I also got a lot of great feedback from part one. Um, one of the main feedbacks was that apparently Nanuet has a Jewish community today, so everyone was very proud of that. Um, but I want to read one of the letters I got. Uh, you mentioned West Point in the context of American history, but it has its place in Jewish history as well. The second student to graduate from West Point was a Jew named Simon Magrider Levy from Baltimore. As of today, West Point has graduated over a thousand Jewish students. In regards to Jewish Haverstraw, I'm attaching an in- uh, interesting article. Okay, I obviously I'm not going to read that article. Let's move on here. Um, oh, Rabbi Edlin, who is the rabbi. Uh, um, uh, who, uh, who was killed in that landslide I mentioned in part one, was buried in the Sons of Jacob Cemetery off of Route 202 with the other Jewish landslide victims. I heard that a group of Hasidim made a minion at his grave on the yard site. Perhaps we can come up with a good skula and make some money. You also mentioned that perhaps one day Nanuet will be part of the Muncie Firm community. I can happily inform you that there's a young yeshiva-oriented 
a community in the area of Nanuet that borders on Chestnut Ridge. Another interesting tidbit is that when Satmar was looking for a location for Curious Joel, one of the possibilities was Congers, a small village about 15 minutes from Muncie. After some of the local non-Jews found out, they threw a fit and Satmar felt it prudent to look elsewhere. One can only imagine how it would have played out if Satmar had settled there. Another uh, astute listener pointed out that I mentioned, uh, I talked about Ronnie Greenwald, and I mentioned even his brother, Dr. Yaakov Greenwald. There's a third Greenwald brother, uh, who's also a student of Shraga Five, also one of the original base Medish Elian uh, community, Sidney Greenwald, who was also quite an active uh, individual in Muncie history. So definitely the third Greenwald brother deserves to be mentioned as well. There's um, also, I spoke a lot about Beis Medjelian. I'm going to continue speaking about Beis Medjelian since that uh, formed the core of the Muncie Jewish community uh, back in the day. Um, other prominent alumni who should be mentioned, uh, one, they, they had nicknamed them in the old Beis Medjelian days, they had nicknamed uh, two, uh, two of the prestigious members of the Beis Medjelian, they nicknamed them Big Jake and Little Jake. Um, Big Jake was Rabbi Yaakov Lipschitz, who ended up being a rabbi in Muncie and one of the, one of the developers of, of Kashrus in the United States at OU and later on his own Kashrus organization. And later on, he was uh, likely the catalyst of Rabbi Wine, his brother-in-law, Rabbi Wine, coming to Muncie as well. And then uh, also there was Little Jake, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Lipschitz of Yerushalayim was a prolific writer for Moriah and other Torah publication houses like Machan Yerushalayim. Another uh, prominent individual was Rabbi Avram Weinfeld, uh, later wrote Leiv Avraham, um, his son of Chatzkel Weinfeld, as a, a Rav in Yerushalayim. Um, but uh, the Leiv Avram, who later on became a rabbi in, in, in Muncie, he was one of the original base Medrash Alien uh, alumni as well. As well as Rav Geltzhaler, the son-in-law of Rav Dessler, who was a Hasidic individual and founded the Yeshiva Ari Yisrael in Queens. He also started off in Mesmerish Alien. Getting back to um, this Rav Yaakov Lifshitz, though, interesting story. He was from Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, his father was a rabbi there, and he, like I said, he married the daughter of Rablazer Levine of, of Detroit. Um, and to join, and, and then when he moved to Muncie, joined the old uh, Litvak uh, community there. So Rabbi Yaakov Lushit studied in Torah Vidas and then Beis Medrashalian, and he essentially never left. Uh, he had his own national kashras afterwards. He was he also a rabbi in Breuer's in Washington Heights for a period of time. His father, Rabbi Yaman Lushit, was a student of the Slabotki Yeshiva in Lithuania, despite the fact that his grandfather was the famous Yaakov Lushit's the secretary of Rabbi Khan Inspector was an anti-Musarite, so they're, in his own family, they kind of uh, left that path and went to Slabatka. Um, and he uh, inherited the rabbinic, rabbinical position in Fall River uh, from his father, uh, who was the son of the famous Yaakov Lifshitz, and, uh, and, and he actually, this son of, the, of, of Yaakov Lifshitz, funded the publishing of Zichron Yaakov, of the history book, the memoir that Yaakov Lifshitz, the original Yaakov Lifshitz, uh, wrote in Kovna, so in the introduction uh, to the to the book, so which is written by um, Rebakov Lifshitz's son Nata Lifshitz um, in 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 Kovna. So he writes that my brother, who's a rabbi in Fall River, Massachusetts, he thanks him for helping out with the publication. So that's that that brother. 
Um, this uh, then his son Rabbi Yaman Lifshitz uh, continues as a rabbi in, in Fall River, and he was a fascinating individual. He translated the Shas, the Gemara, into Hebrew, uh, typeset by hand into five volumes, and wrote called it the Talmud Hamafirash, the expounded Talmud and translation plus a commentary. And there was a sizable Jewish community in Fall River. In fact, Reb Chaskalabramsky had a brother-in-law named Paritsky in Fall River who was a butcher. And um, and Reb Yaman Lifshitz would correspond with Reb Chaskalabramsky who wanted to keep tabs on his brother-in-law. He would also correspond with many of the, the other great rabbis in Europe. And um, um, the... Uh, so that there's this son, his son, Reb Yaman Lifshitz, eventually became this uh, rabbi for many years in Muncie. Um, also would like to thank um, his son-in-law, uh, Reb Mordechai Kamenetsky, for helping me out also with this episode and providing some information and uh, some stories. Um, so we also have one of the other Muncie stories is Arsameach. Arsameach opens a branch in Muncie. And eventually the Rashi Yeshiva of this branch was Rabbi Yisrael Simchashor, the, the son of Rabbi Gedalia Shor, the Rashiva Taravadas, and then Rabbi Yisrael Rukovsky, and the other members of the Rukovsky family. Um, in fact, I remember Rav Pam visited Muncie when I was a child. It was like a, a major event in Muncie. The whole, the whole Muncie went out to greet him, and he spoke in places, and we all had to you know, get dressed up, and we lined up to shake his hand. It, was a very, it left a very big impression on me. Um, so that was, I think, the occasion of his uh, coming to visit Muncie was the dedication of a new building in Arsameach, if I'm not mistaken. So Arsameach has a Balchuva yeshiva, uh, begins in Yerushalayim, and then in the late 70s, in 1977, they open a branch in Yonkers. And two years later, Israel Tauber and other lay leaders purchase uh, um, property in Muncie to build a Muncie campus for for Arsameach, and they built it up over time. It was a a prominent Balchuvi yeshiva there. There were other Balchuvi yeshivas in Muncie as well, but this uh, became a very, very central part of of the history, and though recently it became less uh, operational. Another yeshiva in Muncie was Shmuel Feivelson's yeshiva. Shmuel Feivelson, who grew up in Chicago and then studied in Ner Yisrael, and later on moved to Lake, moved on to Lakewood, where he became a very close student of Rabbi Aaron Cutler. He went to Muncie, became Rashiva in Beis Shraga, and then uh, left uh, Beis Shraga and opened his own yeshiva, Beis Medrash Latora, and for decades had his own yeshiva there until his uh, recent passing. So he was a prominent individual in, in Muncie's history as well. And of course, once I mentioned uh, the Lifshitzes, so Rabbi Yaakov Lifshitz had a son, uh, Pinny Lifshitz, and he um, started off the Yated Ne'eman, the newspaper in Muncie, so that's the a part of Muncie history too, in King's Court, where he would typeset it himself in the early years, and um, and um, and, uh, and 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 uh, until you know became a prominent and prestigious, popular uh, newspaper throughout the Jewish world as well. So there's a lot a lot going on developing in the old uh, uh, called the Litvish community, and you had yet Tuvia Rotberg, Tuvia is the Svarim story, you had Reb Chaim Malinowitz. Before he moved to Israel, there was all these old school Muncie Litvaks as they watched uh, Muncie slowly become a Hasidic town. Um, uh, the the these old school uh, became more and more unique and uh, and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, 
um, of that of that reflective of that old uh, the old style of what, what was originally a a, a small uh, litfish community and um, and they um, you, you had an, another aspect like I mentioned in part one was um, Rabbi Tenler in the community synagogue. So I just want to expound on that a little bit also. On the other side is up the hill and down the hill. So this was the up the hill, which was more uh, modern Orthodox or the more Balabatish, whatever you call it, especially afterwards, many years later, you had development of other communities uh, down the hill, up, excuse me, up the hill in uh, Fort Shea and Concord, Wesley Hills. And down the hill was the old yeshivish and then Hasidic uh, Mansir, Vizhnitz and Satmar and all kinds of assorted small, small ones. So in the original up-the-hill community, where you had Rabbi Tendler and the community synagogue, so uh, Rebetzin Sima Feinstein, Rabbi Maisha's, uh, wife, lived there, lived in Munsu. Munsu was graced by her presence in her later years following Rabbi Maisha's passing. Rabbi Maisha himself, in his later years, spent some time there as well by his daughter, um, so that it had that, uh, that, that prestige. And then affiliated with the community synagogue was the founding of one of the early day schools, Ashar. Ashar, uh, which stands for Adolf Schreiber Hebrew Academy of Rockland, but originally started off as, as um, the Hebrew Institute of Rockland County in 1954. It was kind of early on as one of the uh, leading yeshiva day schools in, in the area. Um, started off with you know, two classrooms and 26 students inside the community synagogue, and then later, very shortly afterwards, moved to its own building, and um, and developed and grew, um, and uh, and uh, and and is still around, as far as I know. So that became a, a, a major uh, school in the community uh, as well. So the um, I also mentioned uh, Tuvias, Tuvias uh, of this farm store. So he was someone who made history and, and kind of enjoys making history. So one, a few of the things that uh, I remember he he, uh, he didn't shy away from controversy. He would sell whatever 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 Jewish books uh, needed to be sold, and irrespective of what what bands were put on. So he was one of the only places that sold the making of the Guddle. Uh, when it came out and when there was the whole controversy around it. And he would sell it from his trunk, couldn't sell it from the store after a period of time. So if you want to buy it, you have to buy it from his car. Um, he, his, I think his father was involved in the Beis Yaakov in, in Muncie at one point. And I remember that also there was a, an issue with he was selling books that were had to do with the history of the state of Israel, God forbid. So so there was a boycott on his store by Vizhnitz, the Vizhnitz Rebbe, Rebbe, Matalahagri, who I mentioned in part one, um, sent uh, down some some of his uh, followers to boycott or picket the store, and he, he, his response was to, I think he he bought them coffee and stood outside with them and put up a you know put up a picture of them boycotting the store on the on or the sign of the boycott on on the front entrance of the store. So you know you can't beat him, join him. So um, uh, the the, uh, just a little more of the feedback I got from part one, which was very funny. Got a couple of other cute uh, stuff. Uh, one of the listeners sent back I, that I mentioned uh, the basis roll, the old basis roll shul. And I mentioned the fact that I had participated at, at some point in my life in the 8 o'clock minion on Sunday morning. So he said in the 6 o'clock weekday minion, there was a saying about the 6 o'clock weekday minion in basis roll that 
from the beginning of davening until the Tappan Zee Bridge in 45 minutes. 20 minutes for davening and 25 minutes down the Palisades Parkway to the bridge. So that's, uh, that's a part of, uh, I guess, Mansi lore as well. Um, I also talked about a little bit about Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky in part one. And there's so much more to say about him in, in, in his days in Muncie. Um, he once came on to another part of Muncie history, Muncie Trails, uh, the Jewish uh, uh, bus company that everyone t- takes to the city. It was started, you know, a Haimisha company with Minyanim and, and davening on the bus and a machitza and the controversy with the machitza and, and all that. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was once going on the bus and he... Uh, take, taking the Muncie Trails bus, and he was offered um, one of the you know travelers on the bus offered that he could use his ticket book to pay for the for the bus fare, and it would be cheaper that way. And he declined. He said it's only a discount for you know regular travelers, people who are consistent travelers. I'm not eligible for the discount because I don't regularly use the Muncie Trails bus on a daily basis. So the the one. You know, the one who was relating the story, or he was relating the story to say how Rabbi Yaakov was so honest and would not want to take the discount. But my humble addition to that story today in 2021 is that the story, there's a story here that Rabbi Yaakov took the Muncie Trails bus. When he needed to go to the city, he just took, got on the bus. He wasn't driven around. And if you wanted to talk to him on the bus, then you simply went over to him and you spoke to him. And these concepts that are so unheard of in today's uh, society, the accessibility of, uh, of people like Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, that he's you know, simply on there on the bus and you're able to go over and, and talk to him as well. Um, but uh, Rabbi Yaakov uh, Kamenetsky, uh, he was once walking with his family in, uh, in, in Muncie, uh, Shabbos afternoon, and he... And he, um, some, someone who, one of the people in the neighborhood, uh, was, was, was out there also with his family, and he was, his child was throwing a tantrum. And Rebekah saw him, and he said, How are you? So he said, Oh, you know, Tsar Gidul Banim. This is the, you know, the, the pains of, of raising children. You see, my son is throwing a tantrum. And Rebekah says to him, that's not Tsar Gidul Banim, that's Gidul Banim. That's raising children. That's not Tsar Gidul Banim. He says, you should not know from Tsar Gidul Banim. And that again, uh, that's uh, you know, very, very appropriate uh, what, uh, what Rebekah Kaunetsky's lessons. And again, uh, out, in, out in the streets of Muncie. When he arrived in Muncie, he sent a letter to the township asking if he can have a shul in his basement, asking permission. So he shouldn't go against the zoning laws. Of Muncie, an interesting uh, a story that happened there. Uh, it didn't happen in Muncie, but he related to a, a Muncie rabbi um, who, who related this story. Is that uh, there's a, a shul, a small shul called Chug Rabbi Yaakov, till today in Muncie. There was, there was a whole interesting relationship that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky had with Beis Medrash Elyon because of all the Tarevadas politics. Um, so he had this, you know, his group of Talmidim, and he related to one of them that um, when Golda Meir, the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, visited the United States, she met with a bunch of rabbis in, in Rabbi Meisha Feinstein's home, and Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky attended the meeting. So she said that the rabbis are being very stubborn about uh, Sherut Lumi, the national service, that they're not allowing 
religious girls to, you, say, you, don't have to you don't have to join the army, they could do national service. So Rabbi Yaakov answered her, she, he said to her, the Prime Minister understands that you could be good at one thing and not talented at another thing, and it doesn't detract from what you are good at. He said, for instance, do you know, does the Prime Minister know how to play piano? So she says, no, I don't know how to play piano. So Ryakovnetsky said to her, but that doesn't make you any worse of a Prime Minister just because you don't know how to play piano. You can be an excellent Prime Minister, you just don't know how to play piano, right? So she said, yes. Yeah. So she says, okay, so rabbis are good at halacha, and you're not. <laughs> so, you know, leave us halacha, and uh, we know how to deal with the halacha shilas, uh, questions, and you don't have to doubt us and think we're just being stubborn. We know what we're doing, and it doesn't detract from you being a good prime minister. And that's, that's the exchange. So he related this story to his students, and one of his students asked him, how did you know that she didn't know how to play piano? You could have gotten stuck there, because she could have said, yes, I do know how to play piano. So Yaakov said, I saw she has grubba fingers. I saw she has thick fingers, and it can't be that she could play piano. So I knew that I would be safe uh, using that analogy. Um, of course, there are plenty more uh, stories about Rabbi Yaakov in Munsi, out of Munsi. We'll have to get back to that uh, another time because we have lots of, uh, lots of more things to talk about. Either way, so we're going to move on. And um, um, the... Rabbi Yaakov's home became the Gerash Stiebel afterwards. They bought it. They simply bought it. The, the Kamnatskis aren't that sentimental, so they sold it, and the ones who bought it uh, were Ger and, and the Gerash Stiebel till today. Um, one of the other f- prominent Munsi uh, personalities was uh, Rav Ram Yehudalei Pesin, who was born Lower East Side and went to RGJ, came from a rabbinic family. His grandfather, Rabbi Ephraim Pesin, was a very prominent rabbi in, in, in New York, um, friends with Rabbi Moshe Rosen, the Biska Ilui, Rabbi Yaakov Safsal, and others, and uh, and Rabbi Yudalit Pesin eventually became very close with Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and also Rav Henkin, and uh, and became a prominent Paisik. He, he he had studied also in Mir Brooklyn, where he became one of the closest Talmidim of the the son-in-law of Chaska Levenstein, actually, who was a Rashiva in in Mir Brooklyn until his unfortunate young passing, a Rabbi Mordechai Ginsburg. And, uh, and Rabbi Pesin eventually went on to marry the niece of the other reshiva in the main reshiva in, in Mirabokan, Rabbi Ron Kalmanovich. Um, so that all this exposure to these great people of New York, and he, in 1972, I believe, he moves to uh, Muncie, where he becomes the rabbi of the base mayor, Hevra Shashul, where he was a rabbi and a Paisik and a Dayan. Um, and a, you know, a very beloved rabbi and close with his congregants for many years. He would give, deliver loads of shiurim and he seemed to have endless energy. He would study on his own for many hours each day and he gave a daily dafyaymi shir for close to 30 years and they gave shiurim on other areas, halacha and chumash and, and, and shas and everything imaginable and he was a full, complete congregational rabbi um, throughout the years, his Muncie also until his uh, recent passing. So he was a, a, a prominent Muncie individual also. They're going to some of the schools. I mentioned YSV last time, and there's the Beis David school. Beis David was supposed to be a more Heimish yeshiva, more, more you know, Yidd- using Yiddish as a language. Um, and, uh, you know, you had Ashar, which was more modern Orthodox, and YSV was middle of the road. And then you had Beis David, which also started early on in the 1950s, and um, and uh, in a more 
a yeshivish sort of a, a school, which used Yiddish as a language, but they specifically wanted to be in you know a more of a, you know not not specifically branded with any uh, any any group or another. So they did not use a Hasidic Yiddish; they used a Litvish Yiddish. Uh, so so um, they uh, it was a very interesting story. Um, they. So, because they, they you know, even when they had a Hasidic rabbeim, they they used a a Litvish Yiddish as the language of instruction. So the accent of the Yiddish was not conforming to a specific Hasidic grouping. So it came along the day where a fellow by the name of Hirsch Meilich Wurzberger, who eventually became the Reish Hakol, head of the Satmar community in Muncie, and when it developed later on, but this is before Satmar opened any institutions in Muncie. So he asked the Satmarav where he should send his children. He can't send them to Yeshiva of Spring Valley. They, they, they're in English. The only Yiddish school is, is uh, based of it. But unfortunately there, the Yiddish is in a Litvish accent. Uh, so uh, so how, could, how could he send his kids to that school? So the Satmarav said, if it's a good school, you could send them there. That's first of all. If you're worried about him picking up the Hasidic accent, he'll pick it up. Don't worry, your kid is going to be fine, and uh, and they'll they'll be able to pick it up later in life. And he said, and the Satmarov added, by the way, what you call the Litvish Yiddish, Reb Aaron Karliner, the great uh, Hasidic leader, he spoke that form of Yiddish because he lived in that area of Europe. So it has nothing to do with Hasidic accent or non-Hasidic accent. It's just a geographical quirk of where you lived in Europe. And I'd add, I think, I uh, believe all the Lubavitcher Rebbes throughout history spoke that way also. So, um, you know, we have to rethink what does Lit- Litvish and Hasidic mean. Maybe it means Galicia or Hungary and Lithuania or Belarus and, uh, you know, that uh, that area. So that's um, based of it. So, we um, another yeshiva there was Chavetz uh, Chaim. Chavetz Chaim yeshiva. The Zaxes moved to Manzi in the late 1950s. They moved from the yeshiva from the Upper West Side to Suffern. The yeshiva Chavetz Chaim was, was built ostensibly built upon the original Radin yeshiva, where Mendel Zaks had served as the Rosh yeshiva. Without getting all, into all the Radin politics and just focusing on the Manzi story, sort of ultimately included a kollel, an elementary school, and even a somewhat curious Radin community. Allegedly, they even moved the Chavetz Chaim's house as well, although that is disputed by some, if that's really what was originally the Chavetz Chaim's house. Um, there's girls' schools, the Beis Yaakov, which I mentioned last time, and then the Beis Rachel, um, which was started by Rafael Eisenberg, which is not a, it was not a Satmar uh, a school. It was a, it was a general, again, a general girls' school, uh, open to all. Um, an, another uh, another Muncie institution, or I don't know what you want to call it, um, was Silva Zemmer Boys Choir, Avram Rosenberg, and some legendary uh, singers like uh, Mendy Wald and Shlemy Dax and others uh, uh, were members of that choir. They came from all these Muncie schools. There was, oh, there's another Muncie school, the Base Mikra, which started under the auspices. I think Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was involved in the opening of that as well. Um, but that came out much later. One of the other yeshivas that spent a short time in Muncie was Iyun HaTalmud of Rabbi Abba Berman, who was a fascinating person. He came from a Hasidic home in Lodz. He was known as Abba Lodger. He went to the Mir at age 14 in Poland and became a close student of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz. And then he was along with the Mir in Shanghai. He was a Rabbi in Mir Brooklyn for a while. And then he had his own yeshiva called Iyun HaTalmud. He had a very distinctive style of, of study, of learning, which he attempted to impart to his Talmudim. And his yeshiva remained small throughout the years, and he moved from place to place. And it really moved a lot. 
it was in Brooklyn, and it was Farakaway, it was in Bnei Brak, it was, then it was in Muncie for a few years. Later on, it was Yerushalayim and Kiryat Sefer. I remember him when it was in Kiryat Sefer, towards the end of his life. But for several years, he was in Muncie. Um, so that, that, that had that uh, stint there as well. Um, he, um, speaking of, of uh, I always like to talk about the cemeteries as well. So there's a Jewish cemetery on Brick Church, which um, has some prominent uh, individuals buried there. Yeah, the, the previous Skalena Rebbe and then the later Skalena Rebbe, just uh, more recently passed away. They're both uh, buried there, as well as the Ribnitzer Rebbe, which comes from the same area in Europe. And um, Romania. And the Romanians made it to Muncie. It was the vision, it's also Romania. So the, all the Romanian Rebbes are in Muncie for some reason. Um, I actually remember the Skalena Rebbe visiting Muncie as a child. Uh, when I, I went to him and he yelled at me for having a, a chup, long hair in the front of my head, which I no longer have, so maybe it's due to his influence. Either way, we go to more of the Muncie institutions. There was a shul on Park Avenue called Sons of Israel. And for many years, the rabbi there was Rabbi Yisrael Flam, who was from a uh, Hasidic family. He was the principal in YSV for decades, but the, he, the one who he succeeded, one who was the rabbi there in the early days, in the 1960s and the early 70s, was none other than Rabbi Avi Weiss. And his first rabbinical position, before he moved to Riverdale, uh, before he became famous, was in Muncie. Um, so he was, he, that's where he started. That's where his uh, career was launched. 1973, he moves to Riverdale, and the rest is history. But what of the great what-ifs of history would have been if he had been, would have really funny, if he and all his stuff had been in Muncie, and it would have been in close proximity to uh, Penny Lipschitz on one hand, and the Vision of Tsareba on the other hand, and Satmer, and that would have been a really, really interesting mix. Speaking of Satmer, so Satmer becomes a very, very prominent story in Muncie. The uh, son-in-law of the previous Satmer Rebbe, Reb Chaim Shia Halberstam, um, eventually becomes the Rav. I mentioned um, um, uh, Wurzburger becomes the Reish HaKohol. They establish their own community. Shul, a Bezdin, they have their own institutions, their own schools, uh, a Kail, and a... a, a everything. In fact, you know, 1979 was when the Satmarov had passed away, so every child born in the 1980s was named Yoel or Yoeli. And so when I was growing up in the, in the 90s, it was such a dominant name that us, uh, you know, kids growing up in Wesley Hills and Forche, who our exposure to Hasidus was rather limited, so we even thought for a period of time that some a, a Hasidic child, someone who had payas and spoken Yiddish, was a yoyli. Um, and only later on that we discovered that there were other Hasidic groups as well, uh, Vizhnitz and all, all that, and Skver and Mansi too. But um, they were very, very uh, dominant, very prominent. They had a, a, a prestigious shul, which was right next to Yeshiva String Valley, um, called Haredim. The reason it was called Haredim is because it started off as the shul of Rabbi Shmelka Taubenfeld, who I mentioned in in uh, in part one, um, who was before that they had a smaller shul called Beis Louis Charedim in, uh, in 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 on on West Ma- the corner of West Maple. Then they moved next door. They got their own property and and built up this big huge shul. And and it was kind of partially Satmer and partially Reb Shmelka Taubenfeld. And when the Bell's Satmer dispute arose. And Rosh Hashanah was nominally associated with bells, and he had to speak out, and uh, that caused a break between uh, uh, Satmer and Rosh Hashanah He left with his own crowd, and and uh, and the uh, and he uh, 
and and in Satmar retained the Haredim base medrash, so uh, Satmar built themselves up around around there. I remember that in, in the Satmar they had a, had a mikveh and they had this little store next to the mikveh where they sold danishes and all kinds of other things. And the Yeshiva Valley, we were not allowed to go buy danishes in Satmar. It was leaving the yeshiva, the yeshiva premises, and little children were not allowed to do that. Uh, it was, I guess, part of their insurance or something. Anyway, so. We always wanted the Danishes. It was for a dollar. You just put it into the little, uh, uh, you know, pushka there. You put a dollar. You brought a dollar to school, and you snuck away. And you didn't want to get in trouble. Otherwise, you would get a detention or have to write an assignment. I don't know, Five hundred times, I will not leave yeshiva premises or something like that. But it usually was worth it because you got a really great chocolate Danish for a dollar going into the basement of of Satmar. One of the other. Um, relate, somewhat related to Samar, a little more extreme, was uh, the the Naturi Karta in Mansi. In the Naturi Karta, everything you have everything in Mansi, from all all ends, all stripes, and um, um, have a very interesting story that takes place in the other side of the world, in Israel, in the 1960s, in Vizhnitz. There's a fellow, he's not the only one, but there's a, one of the one of the prominent members of this group. Um, who I'm about to speak about was a fellow by the name of Moshe Berbeck, who actually passed away recently. Uh, Moshe Berbeck grew up in Hungary, survived the Holocaust in Budapest, being hidden, and survives and moves to Israel with his family. And he and he um, is part of the Vizhnitz Hasidic group and is part of the yeshiva in Vizhnitz. Eventually marries Yerushalmi into the Eisenbach family. And um, in Vizhnitz at the time, so there was... A controversy involving um, the Imrechaim of Vizhnitz's oldest son, um, Reb Moshe Yeshua, who was later the Vizhnitz Rebbe, Reb Moshe Yeshua Hagar, later the Vizhnitz Rebbe, when he succeeded his father, but he was considered a moderate by those standards, and his, his wife was considered even more of a moderate in the girls' school of Vizhnitz. She instituted Hebrew as the language of instruction, which was, uh, you know, considered uh, almost liberal, and um, and other issues within the Vizhnitz Yeshiva, and there arose a dispute, and the way to solve the dispute was was uh, Rabbi Moshe Yeshua Hagar, who was in charge of the Yeshiva the, in, in Vizhnitz in 1963, he simply closed the Yeshiva. He closed it down, and he said anyone who wants to get back in, by the way, this happened in Tells half a century earlier, so uh, so. Vizhnitz and Benebra, Romanian Hasidic group in Benebra, who's doing something that happened in Tells in the 1800s, funny. Um, and anyone who wants to get reaccepted has to get reaccepted through him. And he did not allow this group of who is the rabble rousers, who are the extremists, who are the Kanoim, anti Zionists, um, uh, the, into the, he didn't allow them back into the yeshiva. This, um, some of the faculty uh, left at this time, Rabbi Gedalia Nadal, who was a fascinating person, we'll speak about it another time, student of the Chazanish, at Litvish faculty, Rabbi Nesim Karelitz was there at the time, he also left um, others, and he, these, these students were not allowed in, Moshe Berbeck and his friends. They were called the Nidachim, the expellees, or the ones who were, you know, kicked out or not allowed in, or however you want to translate it, and they go to Yerushalayim, and they start their own yeshiva, and eventually many of them move to the United States, or Meshavar back himself of the Montreal for a period of time, and then in 1980 settles down in Muncie with several other members of the Nidachim. So you have these Vizhnitz Hasidim turned extremists who had joined the Nature Karta, who eventually settle in Muncie, of all places. And they established the headquarters of Nature Karta, 
the uh, the uh, extreme anti-Zionist group um, in Muncie. Eventually, others join a fellow by the name of Israel David Weiss, um, who also is half Polish, half Hungarian, um, but he um, uh, um, most of his family was wiped out in the Holocaust, and uh, he uh, uh, moves to um, to the United States as well. He was born there, remember his, his whole story. But um, they become the major spokesmen um, of the Naturi Carta in America, um, doing all kinds of controversial things, of, you know, visiting Iran and going to the UN and, and all kinds of uh, making things exciting, not exactly in the mainstream to say the least. But that becomes part of the Muncie story as well. Um, similar, I mean, not, not exactly, it's not exactly similar, but the Rav David Khan, the Karin told us Aaron Rebbe, after his marriage in Williamsburg, lived in, uh, lived in Muncie for many years, and uh, he was part of Rav Chaim Flores Kailo, um, who was also a prominent Muncie rabbi until the very tumultuous takeover of the dynasty following his father's passing, Rav Rav Khan in 1996, when he returned to um, Israel. The um, the the one one something to say more in general. Uh, in in Muncie is a big place, and there's lots of personalities, and there's it was a place originally um, that was you know a more accepting place, more diverse uh, that that was supposed to be officially a non-affiliated place. That there was going to be a big mix. And uh, we're, we're all get involved in that. The inspiration for that philosophy was Rav Shagha Fava Mandelovish and Beis Marishalian. The idea of Beis Marishalian and Rav Shagha Fava, which he tried to have in Tervedas also, was that we take from everything, that cosmopolitan philosophy, the urbanization of the Jewish people during the time, that uh, we can take from all and gain from all, and the Jewish people has a lot to offer, and uh, diversity, it, our richness is in our diversity. So uh, you had... Um, and that, that that was existed in 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 Muncie for a certain time. Beis Alien was the central focal point, and the they had their bungalows, which were you know retained by the Kailu members. Um, in the, some of those bungalows actually still exist. Or Dun and Garisher and Rabsim Chashustel's um, bungalows still exist. Um, so uh, the um, the the you know until until Alien lost its own prominence because it closed internal politics uh, internal disputes which uh, led to its closing and then its reopening, um, but for a time it, when it was in its heyday it had that uh, that influence. Reb Chaim Epstein, by the way, who studied in Beismerish Alien as well before he went to Reb Aaron Cutler in Lakewood, and Reb Chaim Epstein said that it was a crazy thing to leave Beismerish Alien at the time. That's how popular it was. Ruvain Grzovsky was someone who everyone looked up to. People didn't have a very close relationship with him. The atmosphere was actually created by the students themselves. Rabbi Shraga Fiva wanted this mix, which, which was a very diverse student body, and, uh, and he pioneered what, uh, what has kind of become accepted today as having that cosmopolitan view. In Beis Medish Elian at the time, you had people like the future Rabbi J.D. Bleich, RCA, and also Rishol Chaim Menashe Friedman, who is the head of the Sachtus or Abanim of Satmer? So, taking everyone the full gamut of Yiddishkeit it was a, a big mix. Um, so the the um, this this uh, 
just checking here, the one of the other prominent uh, personalities of that time from the old base Medishalian, like I mentioned, was Reb Chaim Flor. He was actually named after the, the Malach. Um, uh, he was a big hardliner, but very calm. And uh, and he and uh, several other members of Beis Merishalin, Rosh Katalbenfeld, Rosh Silber, went to speak to Reb Meisha Feinstein about his uh, his famous psak on IVF and fertility treatments. And uh, they were that was an op- you know that was a nice uh, a nice meeting, and Reb Meisha was very impressed with them as well. So they started a relationship of the senior uh, Beis Merishalin students with Reb Meisha Feinstein. Um, and then you had Rabbi Avram Weinfeld, who I mentioned earlier, who was rabbi in a shul that later became Kleisenberg, who was, he was close to the Kleisenberg rabbi. Avram Weinfeld was a very independent-minded individual. His Leva Avraham, um, he has uh, essays in there about Zionism and where he expresses his frustration with both sides, a very middle-of-the-road approach. And he says the Torah is not politics. The country exists and you got to deal with it somehow. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, he's not not fond of Zionism, and he's not fond of the non-recognition uh, whatsoever. Outright, and I mean, we mentioned that Naturi Karta and Satmer were very prominent in Muncie. He 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 he's he's critical of both sides of the equation, and he claimed in there that Rebuvin Grzovsky, his Rebbe and Bishman Shalian, uh, also approved of this approach. Um, the the. Uh, the, some other stories from in and around Munsi. Uh, the Munsi Hatsala started by several individuals. One of them was Nisanel Summers, who was a Dayan, a big Paisik, a prominent individual, and who studied in Reb Chaim Flores Kail. And he used to, uh, uh, um, he didn't have a radio. Hatsala and Munsi did not have a radio. Some may say that's typical Munsi. But uh, so the only way to have a Hatzalah call was to call the payphone in Reb Chaim Flores Koilil and, uh, and, and ask for this Reb Nisanel Summer to come on the Hatzalah call to save the individual's life. He, in fact, would stand next to the payphone during the entire Yom Kippur. And any time the phone would ring, he would answer it just in case a Hatzalah call. And he would get a bit disappointed if it ended up being a, a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a, a telemarketer or something like that. Um, um, another uh, thing in in in, in Muncie was the Yaakov Spivak radio show WLAR was also in in Muncie at the time. Um, so the uh, the um, the um, sorry I mentioned before the Tolosar and Rebbe I mentioned he was in behind floors. He was not. He was in Harvey Waxman's Kyle in Muncie. So that was a misspeak. But um, the the uh, getting back to. Satmar. That's something I, I, I want to end off with. Uh, the idea that that uh, that the prominent the prominence that Satmar has has risen to in Muncie. It started off as um, as a it, uh, when it wasn't even in its own shul. It was part of the Shmelka Taubenfeld Charedim shul. Um, that that kind of signifies what Muncie once was and historically that it was unaffiliated you had this shul called Haredim which had a rabbi who was from Ismetish Elian originally from Bells and the Satmar joins up with the shul and um, as the demographic growth grows and all kinds of communal you know uh, 
politics, uh, identity, uh, and then everyone builds their own institutions, so then everything comes very, very affiliated with their own institution. And that, uh, you know, it could be that's just the healthy growth of the community. Um, and, uh, and it could be that there are those who wax nostalgic about the time that it was much more unified and, uh, and uh, together. But either way, that's, it's definitely a, a symbolic of the development of how a community that was once small has somewhat diversified and grown both geographically into the outlying areas and also institutionally as each and every one of the communities builds their own institutions. So that's uh, part two about Muncie. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. And you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on um, Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.